Welcome to Urbanism Vancouver, a podcast that looks at how we can make Vancouver a better urban experience. Together, we'll dive into the workings of our built environment and discuss how we can get involved in our community. Hi, I'm your host, Helen Loy. With every episode, I hope to share with you some insights from my industry experience and explore how we can make Vancouver a more livable and affordable place. I hope that you'll learn a little and perhaps be inspired to be more involved in impacting positive change. Before we get started today, we want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded and produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and recognize the enduring connection they have to this land. We strive to have our conversations contribute towards reconciliation and work towards sustainability and equity for all the custodians of the lands. A substantial component of our conversation to date, both on this podcast and in larger discussions about the built community, have not included the First Nations and Indigenous communities. We have a massive opportunity to address previous marginalization of First Nations peoples and working in partnership with First Nations is important to the future of creating equitable and thriving communities. This is something I'm also continuing to learn about, especially when it comes to understanding how I can advocate and support more inclusivity. With that in mind, I'm very excited to have Kil Salem join us today. Yeah, my name is Kil Salem. I'm the elected chairperson for the Squamish Nation Council. I was elected to council first in 2017 as a council member and elected as a chairperson in 2021, serving my second four-year term. In my six years on, on the council, I've been involved in a lot of different projects, many involving major land use planning projects, major policy around housing, supporting the development of housing, both market and non-market, both within the Squamish Nation and also through our partnership with Musqueam and Tsleil-Waututh through the MST Development Corporation in the lands that are owned by the three communities of Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, and also worked in sort of supporting some of the urban planning and land use planning work that the nation is also engaged in now, and have just had a general interest, fascination, curiosity around land use, affordability, housing development, and kind of those mixtures of of interests. But really, you know, when I first got elected, one of the main issues that I really wanted to focus on was housing for my community. And for all my life, housing has been sort of a top priority issue. We would do numerous surveys, community plans. There would be different sort of ways that we would ask the community, what are your priorities? And housing and access to housing was always the number one priority. So I sort of had this dream or this mission of during my time in this position, I would want to get so much work done on delivering housing that it would no longer be the number one issue that we would move on to whatever the number two issues. I don't know what number two is necessarily if we deal with housing, because I think it was uh, the writer, what's his name again, Doherty, who wrote the book about San Francisco. Anyways, he had a line in his book around every every problem is a housing problem. I've heard that line before, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah so it's just, you know, I think about that a lot and the yeah. way that housing can be transformational for people. So, yeah. I wanted to follow up on that, like land use and community planning, because at least in my experience, all I've ever done is development in municipalities where you have all of that history of like zoning. And then, you know, we did an earlier episode digging into it. And so much of it is just like racial. So much of it is just exclusionary and this desire to keep people out. I guess, how does policy differ on the work that you guys are doing where it's First Nations led versus, you know, a typical city that has a lot of zoning bylaws that we're familiar with? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say there's kind of two streams to it. The stream that most people won't be familiar with is the sort of development on First Nations reserve land, partly because First Nations reserve lands are they're technically federal lands. And then within the sort of legal structure, there are lands that are set aside for the use and benefit of, of Indigenous people or First Nations people. They are also like collectively owned generally, not always, but they are generally collectively owned. And so there is, tenure is sometimes given out to families or community members, somewhat in perpetuity, some, sometimes not, but the land is still held in common. And so theoretically it could be expropriated by, by the council if they ever chose to, that never really happens. It also is sort of referred to as a form of dead capital because it is collectively owned. Nobody who actually has a right to use and occupancy can accumulate any value on the land. There's no mm. assessment of the value of that property. The only way that you can trigger a value of the land in terms of, of a, a property assessment is if the land becomes mortgageable. And you can operate within the sort of legal structure to put up a parcel of land on a lease, which would then enable it to be assessed at a value and then potentially mortgageable, which is you know similar to what we did to like Sanok as an example. One of the concepts on First Nations land is this idea, it's called a certificate of possession. It is a type of tenure where it is granted to families or individuals. It can be owned by multiple individuals or, in, or single individuals. And it essentially allows for the person who has a certificate of possession to on their own lease out that land if they wanted to, because they can control the type of use that happens on it. So a good example of this is like the West Bank First Nation in Kelowna. They have, you know, significant land holdings next to a very populated area with a lot of economic activity, especially in the winery industry. So so it's just a number of like it's like five or six families who own these large multi-acreage plots of land. And each of the families have decided to develop those lands in different ways, mostly through long-term leases. They're like kind of the opposite of Squamish Nation. Squamish Nation has about less than maybe 10 to 15 percent of our lands are held through these kind of CP or certificate of possession ownership tenures, whereas West Bank's kind of the opposite, where like 80% of their lands are held through a certificate of possession. So some First Nations are like like Squamish, where we, we mostly have kept our lands held in common. And then the stuff we have developed means that most of that revenue flows to the nation, and the nation distributes it through different programs and services to every Squamish member or citizen. Kale Salem has described two key ways in which First Nations communities on reserve lands operate. In both models the land is still legally considered federal lands. The first is where the lands are collectively held by the First Nations people for the benefit of the community. In these cases, 
Any profit generated from the lands are compiled and help fund for collective goods. However, this model also often means it's difficult to assess and create value from the land. And one way to address this is to mortgage the property, which is what the Squamish nation did on the Sanok development. The second way is one where individual people or families within a First Nations reserve are given a certificate of possession, also known as a CP, which is a form of tenure that allows the holder to control the type of use on that property. Kilsalem then compares how land use and development on First Nations communities differ from the land use and zoning regulations that are often seen in BC's municipalities. So it's it's kind of a, compared to like most municipalities, in some ways it's, it, it is a bit of a wild, wild west. Like there's usually not any zoning rules or requirements. It operates on a more ad hoc basis. And it's largely driven by what is the infrastructure that can support the land use as well. So if it doesn't have access to adequate sort of sewage or hydro or electricity, then that will limit it. And the development of infrastructure on or to First Nations is really difficult. You know, a good example is the Semiamu First Nation in Metro Vancouver, kind of south of Sawasan. You know, for years, they were struggling to get access to drinking water to their reserve. And they eventually had to work with the city of Surrey to build a water pipeline from Surrey all the way out to Semiamu, even though the city of Delta was right there, but Delta was sort of difficult to work with for them. So, you know, infrastructure funding and access to infrastructure funding has also been a challenge for on-reserve First Nations development as well. Now, that's the reserve development. It all changes if a First Nation owns fee-simple lands that are not reserve lands, they're, they're fee-simple and privately owned, in which case most of those projects go through the same kind of policy process or rezoning process that any other private landowner would do. However, the main difference is that most of the municipal governments that are operating in that situation, from my perspective, like a lot, will work with First Nations as equal partners as a government-to-government relationship and will sort of grant exemptions or different ways that they'll work with the nation to support their development that they probably might not offer to a typical developer. So it depends on the project, but generally there's a, a bit of a different relationship there. So I think at the end of the day, it's it's just recognizing First Nations as an order of government. And some governments own private lands and develop them, and some governments own lands and do things with it themselves. So I didn't know any of that, like the different ways in which kind of the tenure of land is is treated. I think that's really interesting. You said the second stream was more held in common by the nation. And you said that is the one that Sanok is, that's the model kind of that Sanok is built on, correct? Okay, so in that situation, since it is quite in the middle of our city and there's clearly a lot of existing infrastructure that we can use upon, how did the nation go about determining then how they go about heights or densities or, you know, what kind of mix of land use? Because I feel when we do developments in municipalities, there's already so many rules that by the time you get a site, it's kind of like cut out what you can and can't do. And it just seems like such a great opportunity to have none of those restraints and be able to to start fresh. So can you tell us a little bit of kind of how that approach was? Yeah, I would, you know, I'll answer it with sort of my opinion and then kind of explain why I have that opinion. So I do think that there needs to be a bit of a revolution in terms of how this is approached. And 
I think that we would produce better cities if there was actually more freedom around this. And But at the same time, the way that governments and specifically local governments can actually influence the urban design or the urban quality is, is through the amenities and through the infrastructure. So if we think about livability as including things like culture, transportation, you know, built form and infrastructure, you can create really interesting, fun communities if you have the right mix of amenities and the right access to transportation, whether it's active transportation or transit and other things, jobs that are within sort of reasonable distances, all that kind of stuff. But when you get into things like, you know, in in Vancouver, for example, we have the typical podium and tower structure. For a lot of developers, the podiums don't make them any money. It's yeah. a bit of it's yes. a bit of a tax on them because they're sort of forced to do that, and and so because it's more it's so cost expensive to build these like three four story podiums, you know, and cities are sort of requiring them to put in townhouses or three or four bedroom units because the rest of the development might not do that. But then what would happen, I think, and what we saw at Sanok is, depending on the quality of the amenities, it'll change the type of development that happens, whether it's density or whether it's the development itself considering other types of amenities that might be needed. So that could be things like access to groceries or shopping or restaurants and other types of, and which I would sort of characterize more in the cultural frame of, of livability. So in Sanong, as an example, we were constrained by the Broad Street Bridge, which bisects the property yeah. and kind of cuts it in half. And there was also sort of a recognition that if we were to do a more traditional sort of a podium and tower structure, it would actually kind of alienate a significant amount of the the property at the floor at the ground level, because all of a sudden you're kind of having these roadways going through, you know, access and egress running through all these podiums. It would create a lot of shadow and a lot of just a very boxed in kind of feel when you're at the ground level. And so there was a kind of a desire to explore staying away from the podium and tower structure and actually opening up the space, which resulted in sort of an urban design where I think it's only like 18% of the overall 11 acres is actually being used for the buildings. The remaining like 80% is actually going to be open space and publicly accessible. There's some commercial spaces that will also be publicly accessible. So we've actually worked with the constraints of the site to open it up more. And although there's a lot of criticism around like I'd call it classic towers in the park model, which has, I think, a lot of fair criticisms. The difference there is that a lot of the, like, Jane Jacobs kind of style criticism of towers in the park was a lot of those examples were very amenity-poor areas. They weren't really building a lot of amenities in the area, and they weren't thinking about livability beyond just the built form of of housing. Towers in the park refers to a form of high-rise development pioneered by Charles-Édouard Jeanneret, or commonly known as Le Corbusier. In the early 1920s, he suggested a layout for cities which included tall apartment buildings in the center of city blocks, surrounded by landscaped elements like parking and lawns. They often focused on residential use and were often built for public and social housing. The style has faced recent criticism due to the deteriorating conditions which were worsened by economic circumstances of both the residents and in disinvestment of public housing. Kale Salem addresses these critiques and explains how Sanok is different, in addition to clarifying how they arrived at the proposed mix of homes, retail, amenities, and other spaces. 
the thing about Sanok is that it's actually already being built in an amenity rich area. So you have a right. 40, 50 acre park next door. You yeah. have a significant amount of employment areas within a 10 to 15 minute distance. We've made commitments to improve access to transit and transportation. It's also largely focused as a bicycle development as opposed to a car development. So, and then we've added in, you know, commercial spaces into the ground level for things like restaurants, cafes, bars, grocery, etc. So unlike a typical towers in the park, it actually has a lot of amenities nearby. The ground plane actually becomes quite activated and becomes quite busy and quite lively as a community, not feeling like this sort of dead zone during most hours of the day. And then we also hope to activate it with some, you know, other types of amenities, whether it's like basketball hoops or lacrosse hoops and some cultural stuff that we want to incorporate. So I think that, you know, for us, the the considerations around the development were largely driven by highest and best use. So when we first proposed the 3000 unit, that was just a not notional amount that we proposed because that was just kind of a number that was thrown out there. And it was through conversations with the development partner and through our own staff, we said, well, what, what's actually the highest and best use here? What can the site feasibly accommodate? And then that opened up an interesting conversation because we got to about 6,000 units. We've actually added about another 100, so it's about 6,100 now. Because the, but only at that level of density because it was purposeful rental. If we were doing even a slight increase in strata leasehold on it, the actual total number of units would probably have to come down because the additional cost to build parkade on a, on a constraint site like that would make it way more expensive. So even if we add a 20% condo, we're probably end, only going to end up closer to like 5,000 units as opposed to six. So the, the rental actually allowed us to go even higher. And then the access to transportation for transit and bike also contributed to that. So we kind of pushed it to the high end given those factors. And then the sort of final factor was really around the livability of the site from an access and egress standpoint around transportation and sort of a realization that there's a certain scale where people trying to get in and out of their of the area is is actually going to be challenging. So if we went to like say 10,000 units of housing on 10 acres, the number of people like coming in and out of the site and what's available in that sense would actually be make it really difficult. You know, you start to have like significant traffic problems. Um, right. what, even just on bike, for example. So, yeah. so there's this like, there was considerations around that where we felt like we want to build a, a very highly livable, livable development. This is contributing positively to the city building and is actually going to be a place that, you know, people will praise and enjoy living in or visiting and that kind of stuff. So that's where we ended up, you know, on different sites, we might approach it differently depending on the circumstances, but it, it kind of flowed from those conversations. That's really cool. That almost sounds like you guys were able to take the site and dream up, you know, the amenities and the cultural and the activity first before determining what portion of housing do you need in order to support that vision, right? Whereas currently in our municipalities, it seems to be the opposite. It's like our land use is already dictated as to like what components can go there. And then we cap it at the height and then we ask like, oh, what amenities do we want out of this as well? Which totally then requires us to have that negotiation of like, well, we can't do this because of X, Y, Z. And it's it's not focused on what can we add to the community. So yeah, and I think, I mean, I would place that in the sort of stream of, you know, we've had about 40 years of 
government austerity across all levels and across you know the Western world in many ways. And so if you go back to, say, the industrialist era for a lot of the big cities in North America, you know, places like Chicago or New York, you go back to like when the New York subway, subway system was built, you know, they built out the entire, like a massive amount of the subway system on the assumption that they would build it out and then build the rest of the city around it. Whereas now we sort of try to do this thing and we build a city and then try to build transit. But the reality is like the cost of New York doing that as an example is a, a fraction of what it would have cost if they had tried to build New York the way that we try to build cities now, where it was like, we're going to build a small line and then wait for it to build up, build it up, build a small line, and then eventually the rest of the city will build up and then build another line. If you built a, that subway system over 100 years, it would be way astronomically more expensive. And that's what we're experiencing now. That's why SkyTrain is so expensive to build and all these other things, even you know bus rapid transit and stuff like that. So there's a, I think there's a, a strong case to be made around regional planning for urban development as opposed to this hyper-local form. And I've said it before, like, you know, the, the the structure that we have in Canada around municipal governance and municipal jurisdiction and this whole framework is like, I'll use BC as an example, like the, the BC, the Local Government Act in BC, it was designed as a legislative framework for how you would build cities like in the 1950s. It is not designed for the way that we build cities in, you know, the 2020s or even the 2050s. So it's just it's this archaic form of governance and land use planning and strategy that it directly contributes to our housing crisis and the housing shortage we have now because we haven't been able to keep up because we yeah. we literally build cities the way we were building them 80 years ago and we haven't changed. What Kel Salem has highlighted reflects a few issues we've discussed in previous episodes. Because our land use is so hyperlocal, it's making regional decisions and infrastructure planning more challenging and political, and therefore also more short-sighted. While housing built in the earlier half of the last century has benefited from more public funds, we have since seen more tightening of government funding, resulting in less funds for public services. This means increased costs that rely on less funding. Furthermore, Projects are often now funded and built bit by bit rather than in their entirety, making them more inefficient and expensive. Given that First Nations developments and partnerships are finally and rightfully being brought to the forefront of discussions about our future built environments, I wondered what level of involvement First Nations people have when it comes to municipal, regional, or any level of planning? The short answer is no, we are not. And it's definitely a major risk that they have. And it's an issue that I've raised with both Metro Vancouver and the Marist Council, for example. The regional growth projections for Metro Vancouver did not account for development of First Nations reserves at all. So they just don't include those areas. They don't, wow. we're, we're not a part of the system. And so they never get data from us. We, you know, we don't have an official community plan that they can read that can say there's anticipated to be about what, this much development or, you know, the municipalities are asked to provide their own targets of what they're planning to build, that kind of stuff, level of growth. I, I would say I would caveat with like, I think there's a desire to do that, like to actually include it. It's just that the structure of their government is not set up to gather that data. And then also our governments aren't really set up to provide that data because we don't approach it in the way the municipalities do too. So there's just, it, I think there's probably a desire to move in that direction. It's just, it hasn't been figured out yet. All of those things can be anticipated, but we're not a part of 
Metro Vancouver, for example, we don't have seats on the mayor's council. The Sawasan First Nation does on both. And they negotiated that for, through, through their, their treaty agreement. And I think there's a desire for greater uh, participation in, in, because there are regional districts around the province that have moved in this direction where they've started to include First Nations as a level of government. And I think it's time for both those bodies to be reformed and yeah, maybe maybe beyond even just adding more seats. Like there may be another form of governance that that actually works even better. But right now we are not at the table. And I would argue that both the all the legislation that is applicable in these circumstances are not compliant with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People or provincial legislation that requires laws to become consistent with it. So they're both like both those entities a lot of the legislation that applies, they're, they're all in breach of Indigenous rights and need to be you know, reformed or rethought. It's evident that there is a blind spot in our regional planning in that it neither properly accounts for First Nations communities, nor does it involve them when it comes to regional governance. And many of the existing First Nations reserves, as well as the upcoming developments like Sanok, are clearly important physical and social components of our communities. Kel Salem tells us a few examples where there's been some positive partnerships, though still some examples complicated by fragmented conversations. So like a good example is the Squamish Nation and the tsleil Nation have been working very closely with the District of West Van, City of North Van, and District of North Van around advocacy for rapid transit to the North Shore. One of the big considerations is both the federal government and the provincial government are really looking at major infrastructure spending in a way that supports the development of a significant amount of housing. So there's a reality where are the three municipalities in the North Shore going to approve the same amount of housing that Squamish Nation is going to do on our lands? Because we're probably going to build, we could build or potentially build way more housing than those three municipalities combined would build. So when we're making a pitch to federal and provincial governments to say, you know, transit infrastructure spending to the North Shore could result in support for 60,000 new units of housing, most of that coming from the Squamish Nation and potentially the Slavic Nation, right? So it's like we actually become part of the rationale and we can do a lot, we can deliver a lot more and support a lot more than others might. And we've seen that with Sadak, we've also seen that with like Jericho, Lance, and Heather, where we were able to secure higher levels of density because the nations are involved. So I think that there's like ongoing conversations in that regard, but there's still challenges because senior levels of government aren't making commitments to major infrastructure spending. Outside of the areas that are First Nation reserve lands, is there anything that we can do in order to have future developments, like with more partnership of First Nations? And I guess often one thing that I hear a lot about is you know, giving back some of the land to First Nations who have been living in the, this area for so long. Yeah, I think I think the repatriation of lands to First Nations communities was once thought of as a radical idea, and it's actually becoming the norm. The Jericho Lands Development, Heather Lands, the Broadway Liquor Distribution Branch, the Willington Lands in Burnaby, like all of those are properties that have been returned to the local nations. There was a recent announcement in the summer with the federal and provincial governments in Alberta around the return of 117,000 acres of land to eight First Nations in Treaty 8 of the Northeast of BC. And 
that's the name of First Nation and Naimo, I think, announced uh, like, I think it was 1,400 or 1,800 acres being returned to them. And there's examples around Victoria and then even going across the country, there's stuff in Winnipeg and Saskatoon and elsewhere. So I would say it's like becoming the trend. It's, it's figuring out the mechanics of what properties are available and what is needed to transfer them and that kind of thing. Right now, most First Nations have to buy their land back, even if it is on a vendor take back agreement with the Crown. But I, there's also examples where that's not the case. So I think that's becoming more of the norm. But of course, you know, any public advocacy is support like that in favor of it is helpful. And then I think that there is like, as much as our experience at MST has been that there is broad political support for the nations to develop our lands. And I think I've never been able to do any sort of polling on this to find out what the attitudes actually are or what the level of support is for different positions. But I do feel like there is a very obvious or there's a very obvious story around what we're doing, which is we've reacquired lands that previously belonged to us. We are now going to develop those lands so we can generate revenue to pay for programs and services that will improve the quality of life of our community. Pretty straightforward and pretty simple. That's a very different story than, say, a a private developer coming in and saying, I want to build, you know, 50 towers here because I want to make money. And it's like, okay, that's that's different, right? So I think the public can understand that. But at the same time, I think city halls and planning departments in particular are captured by the homeowner class and the property owning class, especially single detached homeowners, more so than anywhere else. Some of that is a result of like who turns out to vote because, you know, Vancouver has been a majority renter city for a very long time, but renters are not the majority of the people who vote in our elections, right? So there's that caveat, but it, you know, it shows up. I think on the Heather Street development, there was very, very little opposition to the policy statement when we did that process. There was a lot of support for us on the Jericho with the policy statement work that we're doing now and that will come to council in the new year. But the response was actually more mixed and there was, you know, a lot more opposition. And so there's a certain limit where even though we have a lot of political capital to push density in some ways, there is still considerations around local opposition or level of local opposition. I think that if if there, if there was a 90% support for us to go even bigger than what we've already proposed for Jericho, then I think we probably would have went, we probably could have went bigger with City Hall, but we haven't. That being said, we did push the density on that significantly from where the original thinking was to where we landed. So, you know, I'll, I'll take I'll take the win, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> um, but but we've also been supported, right? Like there's there's a desire, I think, by a lot of political leadership across multiple governments to see First Nations succeed and for us to deliver a lot of housing. So I think for the current mayor and council and the previous mayor and council and, and also provincial and federal governments, they want to see MSC build a lot of housing because they know that they need a lot of housing built. And these are one of the few ways that a lot of housing can be built. So we got a lot of support from that sense, too. That's good to hear. You mentioned that all the time when you've been doing polling, that housing was always a top issue in your communities. With all of the development that's going on, do you think that will take a substantial chunk out of the need and addressing that that top concern? Uh, yes, in some ways. I mean, I think when it gets, it'll be some time before a lot of the, the housing that's going to be set aside for the community will will come online. But, you know, we've set a goal to build a thousand units of affordable housing for the community. We're underway on about 400 of that. We just opened rapid housing development that we got federal funding for. We have a community housing funded project through BC Housing opening in a year. We're working on subsidies for Sanok to bring the rents down further. And that will also have 300 units for our members. There's other projects that are happening. 
But we also approved a project plan for our staff to develop a plan for the other 600 units of housing that we've also expected. So I think there was a number of analysis that our staff had done with our community to try to identify both the level of affordability that we would need to support the community also and the number of units overall. And we ended up around 1,200 was basically the, the number that if we had 1,200 units of housing, it would probably fully capture most of the need for the community. Then our goal was 1,000. So we were actually pretty close. And I think, you know, once we get to 1,000, okay, let's just do another 200, 300. We'll get there. And I, I think once people are living in those units and we've built those communities, then I think it'll be a very different story around what is the big need. Because, I mean, 1,200 units of housing is also almost 2,000 people. So that's also a significant portion of the community coming back into the community. The Squamish Nation are embarking on an exciting initiative to address an important need in their community, housing, something that's also important for the rest of Metro Vancouver. I asked Kill Salem to share how they would describe success on this project. There's, I mean, there's very obvious metrics to success, you know, fully built project that's full occupancy, and it's been well-built you know, in terms of, of the quality of the work and that there is a high degree of pride in, in the project, both by the residents who would live there. They feel like it's a great place to live, that there's a high level of or enthusiasm for the style of development and, and the community in, in that sense, as well as from my own community. It's also, you know, it's going to become one of the largest Squamish Nation communities in my nation because there'll be about 300 units of housing dedicated for Squamish people, which is about 500 people. You know, we have, we only have one reserve right now out of nine communities that has more than 500 Squamish people living on it. So, so this becomes like almost the second largest Squamish nation community in the Squamish nation. And, and so the return of Squamish people to Sanok is also a huge, I think, accomplishment for us and, and something that we're really excited about. And, and then that brings with it, you know, a greater relationship and connection between the people in Vancouver and the Squamish people where we've been alienated from our land for so long. And so, you know, there's going to be children that grow up in and around Sanok. There's going to be families that grow up in and around Sanok, and they're inevitably going to have relationships with some of the people that live there that are from my community. So, you know, the people will start to associate Vancouver more with the Squamish people because we're living right, right in the downtown area of it. So, I think all of those things, you know, really make me excited and, and I think make the community excited as well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking time to chat with us. I I definitely learned a lot more. Like, I feel like I don't often get the opportunity to talk about how we can work with more First Nations in order to do our development, to think about our planning and just about our region. So I really appreciated that. Awesome. Thank you for inviting me. First Nations communities largely live on properties that formerly are in the control of the federal government. This relationship and tenure of land also hinders means by which Indigenous communities can produce wealth and create financial value from the land for their benefit. However, as we've heard from Kilsalem, many First Nations have created innovative solutions to create urban developments that benefit both the neighborhood and their peoples. Sanok is an exciting example of this. In my opinion, the Squamish Nation's ability to dream big with this project is largely because they are not bound by the hindrances of our current land use and planning policies. 
One feature that illustrates this is Sanok's significant portion of open space on the ground level of their site for community and public space. If this development had undergone typical zoning and municipal land use policies, these areas would likely have resulted in more privatization through podiums and yards. Instead of prioritizing the minutiae of subjective architectural aesthetics, which emphasize exclusionary land use and hyperlocal neighborhood control, the Squamish nation's role as both developer and government body meant they can instead focus on more cultural, social, and community benefits in addition to their nation's needs. I hope our industry learns from the approach at Sanak. It's clear that so far our governments aren't sufficiently involving First Nations communities when it comes to planning the future of our built environment. Whether it is efforts such as compiling data for regional planning or solving infrastructure issues like drinking water, there still exists numerous barriers for Indigenous peoples to address their needs. We should not only change how we approach planning and land use, but also we should ensure that First Nations are included as an order of government in these discussions to create plans and policies that are inclusive, holistic, and equitable. On our next development, we'll explore the attitudes around housing and specifically the way we value homeowners versus how we treat renters. Some of these are explicit in our regulations and policies. However, others are more subtle. We'll investigate why these perceptions are important as they relate to the future of housing. I hope you'll join me for this conversation. You've been listening to Urbanism Vancouver, the podcast dedicated to bettering our built environment. Be sure to follow us on your listening platform of choice so you don't miss our future releases. I'm Helen Loy. Thanks for listening. This podcast series was independently funded and produced by myself and Aaron Johnson. Visit us at urbanismvancouver.com. 